Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Leading Great Teams, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Craig, and this is the Thought Leader segment of AUSA's Army Matters podcast series. My guest today is Betsy Rohali-Smoot. She's the author of Parker Hitt, the father of American military cryptology. Betsy Rohali-Smoot is an intelligence historian interested in early 20th century cryptology and communications. She's published articles in both Cryptologia and Intelligence and in National Security. She retired from the Center of Cryptologic History of the National Security Agency in 2017. So, Betsy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. It's really great to be here. Well, you know, Betsy, Parker Hitz, in the subject of your book, you know, a very fascinating man who's little known today. What would a modern audience find most interesting about him? I think Hitt is remarkable for the number of things he did during his career and the fact what I found fascinating was that he was a straight-A student at Purdue University studying civil engineering and made the decision to enlist in the Army in the summer of 1898 in the midst of the Spanish-American War and loved the Army, got a commission, and never looked back on that decision. He could have been a great academic, a great engineer, and just his life choices, I think, are interesting to people and thinking about what he would do today. Right. I mean, those life choices you mentioned, that is part of what makes him so fascinating. You, you, know, you mentioned in the wrap up, you know, all the different accomplishments and interests he has. It, it's amazing because, you know, I think some people, when they think about code breakers, they might envision some pipe smoking boffin who kind of gets lost outside the world of ideas. Parker Hill was certainly as intelligent uh, as any boffin, but he was also a very practical man with those wide range of interests. Where did he develop that approach to life? I think perhaps his upbringing led him to be very practical, and I think he was raised to be useful in some ways. He came from a, I wouldn't say politically prominent, but an old family with lines going back to the Germana colonies of Virginia, and his father was a man of action and lots of interest, political connection. And I think he was just raised to be engaged with the world and useful and take full advantage of his aptitudes and skills. And that wide range of interests you know, is reflected even in his Army experiences. You know, from his early days, uh, he was kind of like a forerunner of the multi-domain soldier, you know, working on the, you know, the lakes in the Philippines, touching in aviation, etc. Can you tell us about uh, some of those varied areas that he was working in and how that adaptability might have affected his Army career? Sure. Hit. He first, in 1898, he, through his family friend, Senator Charles W. Fairbanks, took the commissioning exam from the Army engineers and passed, but he was under 21, so he couldn't be commissioned. And so he joined up, and he was part of the volunteer engineers who built the uh, quarantine camp at Camp Wickoff and then went to Cuba and built Camp Columbia there. So he employed his engineering background, but then when he got a commission, he went 
into the infantry. Now, whether he chose not to go into the engineers or chose not to go into the Signal Corps, don't know. I think he was an adventurer. He was looking for travel and adventure, and the infantry was probably the best place to get that and maybe the easiest place to get a commission. Now, he used his map-making skill, learned at Purdue through his engineering courseworks. In the Philippines, he was often given difficult tasks, I think, because there were a shortage of second lieutenants, and he had the aptitude and the ability. He was a great hunter, and he would bring in caribou for the men to eat to supplement rations. He fished. You know, he just enjoyed life, I think, and he just set himself to any problem he encountered. Great. And uh, when I start talking about his, you know, cryptologic work, I guess just to kind of set the stage, maybe we should just go over a few terms. Can you tell us, you know, what cryptology is, uh, difference between codes and ciphers, etc.? Okay. I think the easiest thing, a very simplified definition for cryptology, it really broadly relates to the work required to extract information from secret or hidden communications or to protect those secret or hidden communications. And modern listeners might be familiar with signal intelligence, which has many aspects, including cryptanalysis, which is breaking codes and ciphers, and communication security, which includes what we call cryptography, which is making codes and ciphers. Cryptology also broadly involves the collection of these signals, the processing of these signals, everything that you might see the modern-day National Security Agency doing today. And it was a term coined by William Friedman. So a difference between a cipher and code, very simply, a code is a representation you know, a word or set of numbers representing a word or a phrase, and a cipher uses one or more characters to replace letters. So they have different techniques for solving and different techniques for construction, and HIT was adept at both codes and ciphers. Even though he never considered himself to be a cryptanalyst or a cryptographer or a cryptologist, he ended up doing this job in the Army and later in uh, commercial life. Yeah, and it seems that his, you know, during the Army, his most important cryptologic work uh, came during the First World War. Obviously, it was very early days uh, for this area in the military. So could you tell us a little bit about how cryptology was set up uh, for the American Expeditionary Forces and what Hitch role was in that? Sure, this is a really interesting subject for me, and I left a work behind with the Center for Cryptologic History, which I hope will be coming out later this year on American cryptology during World War I. In the AEF, what eventually happened was that there were three organizations that we think of as cryptologic today. The first were the people who were breaking intercepted codes and ciphers and extracting intelligence that was passed on. And they worked in the G2, in the intelligence section uh, at AEF headquarters in Chaumont, in the G2A6. The other two organizations were subordinate to the AEF Signal Corps. There was the radio section, 
which was first called the radio intelligence section, which confused things with the G2. But the radio section was set up to intercept signals and do direction finding and worked very closely with the French in the field. And they were subordinate uh, to the signal corps. So HIT was involved with them from that manner. The third side of the cryptology in World War One in the AEF was what was called the code compilation section. These are the people who made the trench codes for AEF use. What's very interesting is that while HIT had some cryptologic duties as part of his job in the AEF, first he was the uh, assistant to Chief Signal Officer Edward Russell, and then he was sort of attached to the G3 for communications and codes, and then he was the Chief Signal Officer of the First Army. While he had a lot of cryptologic duties and did a lot of things with code and cipher, he wasn't running any of the organizations. However, all the chiefs of these organizations regularly consulted with HIT and took inspiration from him. So I really see HIT as being the grease that made this machine run. And he made it possible and he helped and guided the direction of cryptology. Have you purchased your AUSA swag yet? Be proud to show your support for AUSA which in turn shows your support for the U.S. Army and our soldiers. Check out all AUSA swag at www.shop.ausa.org. I'd like to highlight, you know, cryptology as, as a battlefield tool during the war. You know, could you, for example, you know, tell us about how radio intelligence was used at the Battle of San Miguel? What was really interesting at San Miguel is the fact that that the collection system had been in place for quite some time at this point. And we were working with the French and we were intercepting German communications, both from radios on the ground, radios in the air, and what's called ground telegraphy, a voice and Morse communications transmitted by wires laid on the ground. And that was a very much frontline communication tool where you had to be very close to the front line to do the intercept of it. So in early September, we're starting to see changes in the codes that are being used, changes in the personnel running these stations, new voices, different things. And we're also getting direction finding of the German radio stations. And it was realized by... Lieutenant Charles Matz, who was the First Army's G2A6, that the communicators were not moving out. The direction findings showed that German radio stations were not moving away, as they would if the Germans were withdrawing from the salient. So it was radio intelligence then that's brought to the meeting on the eve of the battle to say, hey, the Germans are still here. You know, I think the big decision that was being made by Pershing the night before the battle was, do we just go in without an artillery barrage or do we use the barrage to soften things up and then go in? And other intelligence seemed to indicate the Germans were leaving the salient and maybe a barrage wasn't necessary. And radio intelligence, what they called signals intelligence in those days, gave the key to show that the Germans might not be moving out as quickly and helped make the decision that a barrage was necessary. 
Yeah, obviously very important. And I think a lot of people underappreciate uh, how important signals and signals intelligence work is. It, uh, I think you mentioned in the book that signal core casualties were second only to the infantry. That's right. It was really dangerous because as the front moved ahead, especially in the Meuse-Argonne, men had to go out there to lay telephone wire, string wire, because the preferred mode of communication for commanders, of course, was the telephone. Radio was in its infancy. Many people did not trust radio. There were rules that you had to code any radio messages, and that slowed things down in battle. And so telephone wire had to move forward very quickly, and it was very dangerous to be moving in to just gained ground as the front moved ahead, and a lot of signalmen were lost. Well, you've told us, you know, how important cryptology was to, you know, what was happening on the battlefield and how Parker hit role in that, but Parker uh, wasn't the only cryptologist in the family. Can you tell us a little bit about his wife, Genevieve, and, and her own work in that area? Genevieve is a really interesting character, and I consider this as much a biography of Genevieve and their hit's daughter, Mary Lou, as it is of Parker. Unfortunately, there's just not enough documentary evidence to have Genevieve have a book of her own, so to speak. But they were definitely a team. She was a modern young woman raised in San Antonio, Texas, who always vowed she wouldn't marry an army officer, of course, growing up so close to a big military base at Fort Sam Houston. But she admitted to her mother-in-law in a letter, I hadn't met Parker Hitt then. And when she was a young bride, she was at the at Fort Leavenworth at the signal swap. Hitt was at the signal school, and they were living, uh, Leavenworth was just jam-packed at that point, and they were living in what were bachelor officers' quarters, two rooms with no kitchenette even, and cooking on, I don't know what, but <laughs> or eating at the mess. And she got interested in Hit's coursework in codes and ciphers and started solving little problems. When Hit started receiving messages from Washington to solve over the course of 1915 to 1917, Genevieve was also solving messages for the government and became the first, as far as we know, the first woman to solve codes and ciphers for the U.S. government, even though she wasn't being paid for the task. Later on, when Hitt goes to France in May 1917, Genevieve moves home to San Antonio, moves on to the post, and the Southern Department, which is headquartered at Fort Sam Houston, starts sending her intercepted radio messages that are in code to break out. And they're addressed in handwriting to Mrs. Hitt at her home on the post, And she's doing that again in the fall of 1917, all the way up to the spring of 1918, when the Southern Department's intelligence officer, Robert L. Barnes, hires her to come to work six and a half days a week at the intelligence office, which was located in the Quadrangle, just a short walk from her home. And she went to work full time as a code clerk, where she was responsible for coding and decoding official messages, but also for breaking code and cipher messages that were intercepted by Army radio stations or acquired through postal censorship offices. 
Well, Genevieve was clearly, you know, a pioneer in this area, but it seems to be an area that, uh, you know, a lot of women made important contributions. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, Parker Hitch setting up the telephone girls and uh, what was happening in Arlington in the next war? Sure. Yeah, World War One is really, I mean, it's the start of the modern cryptologic system, and it's the start of women being involved in the modern cryptologic system. Women are employed in MI8 in Washington. They're employed at Riverbank Laboratories, which is contracted by the government to do cryptologic work before MI8 is up to speed. And they aren't used in France. However, as I think recent books have made clear, been a lot of publicity lately for the Hello Girls, the female telephone operators. Now, this was first this idea of bringing women to France to handle telephone conversations came up in the signal office when Hitt's colleague, I think Robert Owen, brought it up and Hitt and Russell and Owen all agreed they were sick and tired of dealing with the French operators who just caused all sorts of problems. And Hitt wrote the memo that Russell pushed to Pershing to bring over experienced female telephone operators and then helped made that happen. Fast forward to World War II, many, many women, the larger proportion of the workforce at the Army Security, what what became the Army Security Agency, which was then the Signal Security Agency at Arlington Hall Station, the vast majority of those workers were women. And for a brief period, the Hitt's daughter, Mary Lou Hitt, was employed at Arlington Hall Station as a code girl. You've mentioned uh, throughout the book and in our conversation about uh, you know, Parker Hitt's role in cryptology, you know, in the military and his great uh, reputation uh, with his colleagues there. He also you know, tried to make the subject approachable to the general public. Can you tell us about some of the popular books and games he developed to try to accomplish that? I don't think he originally intended to do that. Now, Hitt had a health crisis and had to retire from the world of work in 1932, and he was bored. And he started looking around for things to do. And one of the things he did was write a little book about cryptology, which eventually became known as the ABC of Secret Writing. He was also approached by someone who wanted to look for ways to publish, get a cipher column into daily newspapers or maybe sell a cipher game. He devised one called Crypto Game, which never came to fruition and which never sold. But I think he was just looking for something to do, a little way to earn money during the Depression. I don't think he had a great motivation for this. But his manual for the solution of military ciphers was still in demand in the 30s and 40s. People were always writing to him, seeing if he had copies, if he was going to rewrite it, reprint it. Well, that brings us uh, to an interesting part to, you know, to kind of wrap up. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Hitt's legacy in the, uh, you know, the signals world, the National Security Agency, and tell us uh, how you liked Parker Hitt to be remembered today? Hitt, until very recently, was very little known in even the cryptologic community. The impression his book 
and his work in France coordinating things, even though that wasn't his job, left a strong impression on William Friedman, who in some ways is the grandfather of the National Security Agency and the 20th century's greatest cryptologist. And Friedman did everything he could to promote Hitt's work, used Hitt's work in his writings, and recognized him as coming up with some of these principles. But I think no one really realized that until I started to do some research into Hitt towards the end of my career at NSA, and hopefully that will be solidified by the book. But I'd like Hitt to be remembered as sort of an all-rounder in the Army, just the amazing things one officer did from the time he was enlisted in the Spanish-American War to the contributions he kept making throughout his career, cryptologic and non-cryptologic. I think, you know, I wanted to tell the story of the whole person, not just his military career, so you could really feel for what it might be like for someone who you might not think would normally be a logical candidate to be an army officer, but who had a fulfilling career in the army. It gave back to him and he gave back to it. And he had a really interesting life. So I'd like people to just really enjoy his life and the contributions he made to the world as it is today. Well, he certainly did have a a fascinating life, an interesting life. And I want to thank you for sharing that life, uh, both in the book and in our conversation here today. So thanks for being our guest. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me here. And audience, uh, again, I want to thank uh, Betsy Rahali-Smoot for being our guest. And her new book is Parker Hitt, the father of American military cryptology. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army Day. Hua.